Welcome to Opto Sessions, where we interview the brightest minds from the stock market, uncovering their secrets to success. If you're looking for ideas, tips and techniques from the world's best, you're in the right place. Hi guys, Ed Gotham here for Opto Sessions, and have we got an episode in store for you today. Joe Clement, a mathematician and physicist turned investment strategist, currently working at Liberium Capital in London, where he's focused on the equity strategy and building the ESG investment offering. Joachim has really had a very interesting career spanning over 20 years, which included at one point being a CIO of a notable Swiss bank and also after that uh, an MD at Credit Suisse. He spent most of his career working with wealthy individuals and family offices, advising them on investments and helping them manage their portfolios. In the interview, we uncover some really interesting insights from his recently released book, Seven Mistakes Every Investor Makes, along with why Spotify should start a hedge fund and his client from hell. All this and a lot more. So this is definitely already one of my favorites. So make sure you listen to the whole thing. Okay, here we go. Welcome, Joe. Uh, It's a pleasure to have you on the show. How's your week going at the moment? Well, thank you for having me. And uh, so far, so good. It's been hectic, like uh, most of the weeks during this crisis, but uh, it's better than being bored. <laughs> um, now, I've been digging through your blog, which I have to say uh, is quite, quite fascinating. Um, I stumbled across quite a, a post which uh, like sort of caught my eye and thought it would be a brilliant place to start the interview, basically. And it was about Spotify and, and why Spotify should start a hedge fund. <laughs> And I don't know if you could, get, could go into uh, as a brief post, but it'd be interesting just to get your, your point of view on that. Yeah, so every Friday on my blog, I, I post something that is kind of quirky and un, uh, in, unanticipated for most investors. But uh, actually, uh, what I did not know is that Spotify provides a lot of data for free on its website for programmers. And one of the data points that they provide is for every track that they play and that they stream, They also have what they call balance, which basically is the mood of the song, whether it's very cheerful and optimistic or whether it's very depressive, like the blues. They typically say that the the song with the lowest balance and the most negative mood is Layla by Eric Clapton, while Walking on Sunshine, for example, is a 1980s classic that is, as the name says, very optimistic and bright. Uh, And actually what uh, some uh, academics have done is they looked at what people were streaming and then how uh, stock markets reacted. And the funny thing is that there are clear patterns uh, to when people are listening to optimistic, bright, cheerful music and when they listen to more depressing music. Uh, Because every year around Christmas, for example, we listen more to Christmas songs, which are more cheerful, optimistic, and the same thing uh, typically during other festive periods like Easter or public holidays, when we're cheerful ourselves, and the music reflects that. Now, what we do know from studies in the past is that when people are optimistic and cheerful and happy, they also tend to be more risk-loving as investors. So what these guys did was actually say, okay, let's have a look at what uh, Spotify streams uh, in the US on a daily basis and then see if that is reflected in the stock market. And yes, on days when people stream more optimistic music, the stock markets on average had higher returns. (laughs) 
Now, that alone doesn't make you a hedge fund because you can't predict what kind of mood people will be in tomorrow. But on a day with very cheerful music or a couple of days with very cheerful music, afterwards, the music becomes a little bit more pessimistic. It just kind of reverts to the mean. And that is what you can exploit. And this is why Spotify could open a hedge fund by basically shorting the stock market on a day for the day after the people streamed very cheerful and optimistic music and going long the stock market on days after they listened predominantly to pessimistic and blues. Very interesting. A lot of people are looking to sort of sentiment um, nowadays, and, and, um, but no, no, yeah, nobody I've seen has, has been taking Spotify data to get an insight on it. But yeah, thanks for, thanks for that. Um, so you, you've got a new book coming out. Um, or I believe that's it's out already. Is that is that true? Yeah, it's out for a couple of months now, but it's still fresh. So uh, I would say m- many of the copies that you order now are still warm. Yeah. Okay. Um, and it's called Seven Mistakes Every Investor Makes and How to Avoid Them. Are you able to give us an idea of of of, of what to expect in the book, potentially by revealing one of the mistakes to our audience that might be most relevant to? the market volatility we're seeing at the moment or yeah no absolutely so the book is basically a very subjective selection of the seven biggest mistakes i have made in my career as an investor um i've made probably way more than seven mistakes but those are the seven mistakes that i collected where i would say these are very common and i see other investors make them all the time uh, as well and one of the things that i find particularly uh, interesting and relevant for the current crisis is that we tend to look at our portfolios at the moment too often. Uh, To give you an idea, if uh, I have a stock portfolio, uh, and if I look at that portfolio, say once a year, well, we know that in three out of four years, stock markets are up. So every three, uh, in three out of four years, I will see a positive return on my stock portfolio. Now, if I look at the same stock portfolio on a quarterly basis, I see a little bit more the swings that happen during the year. If I look at it on a monthly basis, I see even more of those swings. And if I look at it on a daily basis, the interesting thing is that half the days are negative in stock markets and half the days are positive. Now, the thing is that if I look at it on a daily basis, the positives are a little bit better than the negatives. That's why on the end, in the end, over full year, stock markets tended to be up. But if I look at it more and more often, uh, then what happens is I see those fluctuations and I become more scared. Uh, And that is exactly what a lot of people have done again during this crisis. If you go back uh, to February, March, April, uh, what happened is the market started really well into the year, it was up slightly, and then the COVID crisis hit. And in March, literally every day we went down 10%, 10%, 5%, 10%. And so it was a real onslaught. And of course, we all get worried in these situations. I am no different than anybody else. And the temptation is, I want to take a look at my portfolio and see what it's done. And obviously, if you do that and you see it's down 10%, 20%, 25%, your temptation is, I have to sell something. I have to sell either everything or I have to sell the biggest losers or some of the stocks. I have to do something to make this stop. And then what happens is that you typically sell at a really bad time. 
simply because you looked at your portfolio constantly. Maybe you didn't sell the first time you looked, but maybe you looked a week later and you saw it go down even more. And then at some point you sell it and you, you typically reduce risk in these circumstances. And then what happens is we missed out or the people who did that missed out on the recovery that we've seen since April. And as a result, they've compounded their losses by just basically looking at it too often, which triggered a short-term reaction, triggered too much short-termism in our actions as investors, and it cost us dearly uh, over the, the subsequent months. And I think that is something that I've been guilty of in the past myself, mm. and that I see a lot of people uh, doing in this crisis again. What do you, um, what do you think about, so obviously, uh, yeah, so the recommendation is, put, is not to sell when it feels like you should be selling. But then um, is, a, is a potentially good way to attack it is to um, add funds, obviously, when there's big down days. Do you recommend anything like that? Or is it bad? Because um, a lot of the time, I suppose, people don't have the cash available if, it's, if you're fully invested. Or people should have some cash always to take advantage of times when stocks certain stocks are cheaper i think my i mean so my my recommendation is several fold uh there are several recommendations but i would say in, on a very basic level first you should differentiate are your investments for the long run or are they more trading investments that where you're actively getting in and out of stocks for example mm. for the long run investments Number one is separate it from your trading stocks and from your trading portfolio. Do it in a very different portfolio where you have a different login uh, and you have different statements. So you don't have to look at the trading portfolio and the long run portfolio at the same time. You can look at them individually. And then the long run portfolio that I have, which is mostly there to save for retirement, this portfolio, look at it only once a year. Now that sounds crazy. Uh, but effectively, most of us have 10 years or more until they retire. Or if it's saving for a down payment on a house, you typically also have 10 years or five to 10 years. And if you look at it just once a year, you get that positive psychological effect where you only see the big trends and you're not that scared by short-term fluctuations. And you kind of block that out of your view and it helps you stick to your long-term portfolio really for the long run and not get into this mess of fiddling around with it to accommodate short-term fluctuations. Now for your trading portfolio, and I admit I like to trade in, in single stocks, there's a different story. There I usually use stop loss and re-entry rules in order to kind of override my urge to sell at the wrong time or to become too greedy if I see a stock that has gone through the roof and I think like that's an absolute winner, I have to have more of that. Uh, and what I do is for most stocks, I put a stop loss at around 10% below my entry point. Uh, and if the stock drops more than 10% from that entry point, or if I have it longer than a year from its 52-week high, so from its 12-month high, uh, if it drops more than 10%, I automatically have a stop loss in place so the stock gets sold. So I don't run into this risk of riding a, uh, a crisis like the one we had in, in spring to the very bottom. Oh, very interesting. And if you, are you able to give us uh, a quick background relatively brief, I suppose, about you, about you and how you got to where you are today. And I know you've had uh, quite an interesting one. I believe you started off more in, a, in sort of mathematics area. 
Mm. Yeah, so my, my background is in maths and physics. Uh, I've been a real-life Sheldon Cooper because I, I've worked in, in theoretical astrophysics uh, in the past. I don't remember anything from those days except uh, that it does help me in uh, kind of analyzing complex uh, systems. And that's basically how uh, I approach financial markets uh, because I'm, I'm very fascinated by financial markets and by humans interacting in financial markets. So I am very much fascinated by behavioral finance and investment psychology. And I use my maths background to kind of analyze uh, human psychology through the means of markets. I've been doing that for almost 20 years now because I've worked mostly in my career in wealth management. So dealing with wealthy individual investors where uh, you learn a lot about humans, about sentiment, about psychology and what drives people to buy or sell uh, one thing or another. Uh, and I've been doing that for, for almost 20 years, but at the moment I am working for a brokerage firm that uh, and uh, I'm ru uh, running their strategy team. So I'm I'm there uh, analyzing European and UK stock markets. Awesome. Yeah, I have to say that um, it's yeah a lot of your um, the posts I've read incorporate a lot of unique data that I've not seen before. It's quite um, uh, one of your unique selling points, if you like. So I've really enjoyed. Uh, looking at a lot of that stuff that you don't see in a lot of other places. Um, and yes, yeah, so you worked as a CIO as well, I, mm -hmm. I believe. Um, and uh, obviously collaborating with, uh, working with a lot of family offices, institutional investors. Um, did any one individual um, or company stand out in, in particular in terms of their investment strategy or, or their approach? Uh, not really. I mean, let's put it this way. I cannot talk about some of the individuals that really stand out, uh, but let me give you a, an example of, I would say my client from hell uh, is what I usually refer to uh, in that respect. So this was a person who was incredibly successful as an entrepreneur. He uh, started his own business sold it for 300 million US dollars after 20 years of doing that business. And then he was, so he was used to being not only successful, but also being in charge. And being in charge as, a, as an entrepreneur, as a business owner, means you can move things around, you can make things happen. And what, often, what I often see is that people who are very successful in their jobs uh, tend to be really unsuccessful as investors because one of the key differences is if you are an investor, the stock market doesn't care what you want. Mm. The share price of uh, Shell, for example, or BP doesn't know what you think it is worth and it doesn't care. So we, we had lots of interesting discussions because he was not a very experienced investor at all. So, for example, when we decided one day to buy BMW shares of the German car manufacturer, and we, we looked at it and we decided that this would be a good investment, and the share price was one thing, it was, I don't know, making things up, 60 euros. Uh, and then when we executed it a, a week later, it was 65 euros. So he paid five euros more. And we, we gave him the transaction slip and said, yeah, we bought these shares for you. And he looked at it and he's like, why did you pay 65? You said it worth 60. You should have negotiated better. And I'm like, dude, 
I can't have negotiate with the with the Frankfurt Stock Exchange. It's sixty five on that day, and that's it. End of story. <laughs> and and so there's a lot of education needed. And the problem is with uh, a lot of these people is that they're very resistant to uh, education and very resistant to giving up control. Uh, and that was a big big challenge in in working with him. And I had another thing here about your just about obviously. Through your experience, you've been around in the markets a long time. Uh, you've been, I think, believe probably through two, or this could be the third down big downturn uh, you've been through. Is there anything from previous um, recessions, I suppose, like the financial crisis over a decade ago that you learned or the number th- one thing you took away from, from being through that experience? Yeah, I mean, that's, I think, I, in in a sense, the 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 generation that is pretty much as as I, old as I am, so Generation X, I admit to being a Gen Xer. Um, we've had good times and bad times, and I think the bad time is that uh, we uh, had our peak years as investors uh, first during the tech uh, crisis, then the financial crisis, and now the COVID crisis. So three major downturns in twenty years. Um, and, and obviously that's not good for our portfolios in the long run, but also with that experience of now being in the third major crisis in my career as an investor, um, I become more relaxed. I, I have learned things from the previous two crises that helped me today. One we've talked about already, namely to not panic when you see markets go down, uh, to, I, I usually have this, this slogan that. Uh, many of you are aware of, which stems from a uh, Abraham Lincoln uh, speech. Now, this too shall pass, uh, which is kind of a reminder that no matter how bad the situation is, you always have to tell yourself, "This will pass. We will get out of this crisis. Things will get better." And similarly, if you are in a boom, this too shall pass. Because I started my career in the late '90s when we were in the middle of the tech bubble, and everybody was. Uh, buying these high-flying tech stocks that seemingly couldn't go down. And if that sounds familiar to today, it is, because it's a very interesting parallel to today's situation. And, you know, this too shall pass. Tech stocks can go down. They will go down eventually, and people will eventually uh, experience losses with their tech investments again. And so these are lessons that I've learned from the past that I still apply today. Uh, And while I'm not immediately pessimistic about the Amazons of this world and the Apples and and the Googles and Microsofts uh, of this world. I think there will be a point when these companies will have to uh, derate, as professionals used to say, so when they will have to uh, reprice less optimistic assumptions about their future growth than what is priced in at the moment. Great. I'd like to go back to uh, talking about investor mistakes um, in the same sort of vein as, as your book. And um, why, why did you write Seven Mistakes for Every, every Investor Makes? What, what was the sort of inspiration for that? I mean, it, it, it started with me being on another podcast. Uh, shout out, if I may, to yeah, my, of course. my worst investment mistake ever where people get invited to talk about, as the, as the podcast says, about the worst mistakes they've ever made. And that got me thinking. And uh, actually, I have the dubious honor of being the only guest so far that has appeared on that podcast twice. 
not really sure whether that's a proud achievement or not. Um, but essentially, I, it, it started the thinking process, the thought process, and said, look, I've made these mistakes. A lot of other people in my career as a, somebody who worked with a lot of successful people wealth, in, in wealth management uh, seen these mistakes make again and again and again and again by dozens and hundreds of people. So why don't I write down what I have done in my career and in my personal experience to avoid these mistakes? Because there's no shame in making mistakes. We all make mistakes all the time. I think where things get tricky is if, and that's one of the mistakes that I actually write about in the book, is if you don't learn from your past mistakes, if you start repeating them over and over again, that is shameful. And, and I've developed in my career a few techniques, simple techniques, how you can avoid making the same mistake over again. And do you think these mistakes, uh, the main mistakes you, you're, you're going through, you see you know, common among investors, um, are these the main reasons why, why many investors underperform the market average? I think so. I think so. I mean, the, the re- I think that the main driver behind underperformance, and not just for for common people and retail investors or private investors, but also for professional fund managers is their psychology. It's what goes on in their head when they're making investment decisions. And because no, none of us is a robot, we all are humans. We all suffer the same biases and shortcuts and, and heuristics and, and make all the same mistakes because we're all humans. That's just being human. That's what it means to be human. And so as a result, they will be repeated by everybody at some point in his or her life. And so the question is, how can we uh, devise simple techniques that actually work in making us better uh, in these in investment decisions? And are you, are you um, able to give us an insight into, into sort of a technique that you've used, maybe an example, if you will? Yeah, the one that I devised kind of one of the first ones that I devised and that is incredibly low tech. I mean, remember when I talk about techniques to help us get better, I'm not talking about complicated models and, you know, it's just like we, you need a maths PhD to understand wh- what is going on. No, I'm talking about a pen and a pencil and a bit of paper. So the technique that I've been using the longest in my career is investment diaries. So for every investment decision I make, whether I buy something, sell something, whatever I do, I write down three simple bullet points. First bullet point, what did I do? I bought 20 shares of Amazon, for example. Second bullet point, why did I do this? What is my investment thesis? Well, I think Amazon will uh, benefit from this lockdown situation. And we've seen so much disruption happening over the last three months that Amazon should be one of the main beneficiaries of this shift towards online retailing, uh, even more so than in the past. Third bullet point, what could possibly go wrong? Where could I be wrong? Well, Amazon is super expensive and a lot of optimism is already priced into the stock. And that's what I do. These three bullet points I write down for every one of my investment decisions. Takes not even five minutes. And then once a year, I go back to my investment diary and I flip through it and I look at all these decisions. And word of warning, 
it is not really helpful for your self-confidence to do that because you see in your own handwriting all the mistakes that you've made. You're really good at if, for example, if the stock went down afterwards, let's assume that in a year's time, Amazon has gone down 10%. uh, I will have a lot of reasons why I didn't think it was going to go up back then or why I was right in being skeptical uh, about it. But if you see it written in your own handwriting, what you thought at the time of your investment decisions, it is a big, big reality check. And one of the things that I learned about myself was that I'm really good at selling, but I'm really bad at buying. Meaning that because I am constantly thinking about risks and what could go wrong, I tend to sell really early before a market crashes or has severe setbacks. So for example, in 2008, nine in the crisis, I tended to, uh, I sold a lot of my uh, risky investments in the spring of 2008. Not that I saw the financial crisis coming, not that I saw the COVID crisis coming. It's just that I, I saw that there are risks there and that things are not going well. I reduced risk, super happy. My big problem is once I'm out, I have a real problem getting back into investments because I constantly see these risks. So I let the market run away from me. That's what happened to me in 2009. I didn't go back into the market in spring 2009. It actually took me until autumn 2009. And by that time, the the stock market had rallied 20, 30% already. So I missed that recovery. And that's why I know today I'm really good at getting out. So if I, if I get an, uh, an awkward feeling, oh, this is not going well, I trust that feeling. But then I put myself under strict rules. These are the circumstances when I go back into the market, no matter whether it feels right or not, because that's where my brain is acting up and, and delivering bad uh, outcomes for me. Yeah, that's a really interesting, um, yeah, a very simple technique uh, this sort of writing down, journaling your investment sort of choices, and which I assume like majority of people actually don't don't do, and I can imagine how um, enlightening it is to see why you're making decisions, um, and probably one of the first steps towards understanding what you're actually doing, because you forget, you know, day to day why those decisions were made. So recognizing your mistakes is probably yeah the first step towards fixing them would you would you say um investing is then primarily for you like a psychological game against yourself then yes yes it is it is literally you're playing not against the market you're not playing against your buddy uh or or your colleague at work you're playing against yourself Mm. and uh your your opponent is the one that is in between your ears and um, as a retail investor, I had a question here saying, just saying, um, what should a retail investor do, which could disproportionately increase their chances of success in the long run? In the long run, sorry. Uh, but I assume maybe you'll say it was it was the journaling or or not looking at your portfolio. I would say two things: it's the journaling plus being really forcing yourself to be a real long-term investor. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I think most investors really make the mistake of too much left and right in and out of investments, too much changes and it all costs money. And usually you do it at the wrong time. We're not typically not very good at timing. 
and also you can't take advantage of compound interest over time etc exactly exactly and do you so it between private or retail investors and professional sort of more institutional investors um do you see people they're making the same mistakes are, are they you know the professionals making the same mistakes as the retail one some mistakes uh, are made by professionals just like retail investors other mistakes professionals don't make and and especially the because the professional investors uh, they have one disadvantage versus retail investors and they have one big advantage versus retail investors the one big disadvantage is that they have to look at their portfolios every day because that's their job uh, and so they are far more exposed to short-term thinking, short-term action, and short-termism in their portfolio and uh, their portfolios. And that's what I see a lot of professional investors make as well. And that's where they are very similar to retail investors. They just are way too much driven by short-term volatility and short-term development. Mm. Uh, the very fact that I call myself professionally now a strategist, and typically strategy means long-term outlook, but most strategists in our industry have an outlook of 12 months. Now, 12 months isn't a long time. It just isn't. Uh, years is a long time, yeah. not one year. Um, so that's the same. That's where, where professionals and retail investors make the same mistakes. Where professional investors are much better than retail investors is in uh, managing their risks. So professional investors have a lot of uh, risk management tools. They have a lot of Excel spreadsheets, professional software, etc., where they can look at, oh, maybe there is too much money in this stock that gives me too much exposure if oil prices drop, for example. Yeah. And that is something where they have a distinct advantage over retail investors because one of the mistakes that many retail investors make is just put too many eggs in one basket and not diversifying properly. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and that is something that, that professional investors almost never do. And from, yeah, from your experience working with professional investors, are there any common traits that you saw uh, between, uh, in those that are consistently sort of successful over, over a long period rather than just, you know, a lot of people can be successful during a, a year, but long yeah. term? I think one of, one of the, I think the key uh, differentiation, differentiating factor for a really successful investor is a lot of professional investors are really good in analytics. Uh, so they're really good with maths. They're kind of geeky uh, in the nature. They're really good with numbers. And they have a lot of models and a lot of analysis. And they're really good at that. Um, but where they're not good or where, where the, the really, really superior investors differentiate themselves is having that X factor, that feeling when to distrust the models. Because if we look back into the history of financial markets, it's littered with examples where even Nobel Prize winners were setting up hedge funds and then they blew up because something happened where that wasn't in the model and then they just lost everything. Mm. And, and the really successful investors have that common sense, that, that knowledge that, yes, I've got my math, I've got all the numbers, but somehow... I don't think that this situation is where those numbers matter. And that's really hard to describe. It's really hard to, to kind of grasp what that is. Yeah. And for the retail investor, what's, what's your viewpoint on buying individual stocks or uh, very common nowadays index or based 
uh, ETFs, trackers? Well, the, my, my common approach is for my long-term portfolio, it's almost all in index funds. Yep. Uh, well diversified, cheap. Um, I do have actively managed funds for less efficient parts of the, the market. So, uh, for example, if I uh, want to get exposure to emerging markets or, or to small stocks, there I think you can really add value with active management. At least your chances are better. But the vast majority of it is in index funds. Okay. For my trading portfolio, as I said, I'm human. I love to trade. I, I like the markets. I like to think about companies, etc. There I do single stocks, but that is, as I mentioned, it's ring fence. So it's maximum 10% of my total savings. So I make sure I can't screw up my long-term investment plan yeah. by trading and then losing a lot of money in the trading portfolio. Um, and so it's ring fenced. It's, it's limited in size, but I still get my kick and I still get my enjoyment out of analyzing stocks and, and thinking about possibilities for, for different companies. And to wrap up the sort of mistakes section, um, I just wanted to say, is there a lesson you've learned that, you, that is contradictory to sort of what many believe is best practice? Yes. Uh, and that sounds, after I've just given you a speech about being long-term and how to be long-term oriented, you can be too long-term oriented. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, it's, there are sometimes situations when people are just stubbornly clinging on to some investments that have lost so much money that it will take years or even decades to recover the losses, let alone uh, to make money out of that. Uh, when I started my career, one of the first things that happened, and I, I started it in Switzerland because I lived in Switzerland for 21 years. Uh, one of the first things that happened in my career was the uh, bankruptcy of Swiss Air. So the famous uh, Swiss airline, uh, which basically was grounded and then fell into bankruptcy in 2001 after the 9-11 attacks. And uh, even in the year 2003, 2004, I still met clients that had Swiss Air shares in their portfolio, valued at zero. But literally, if you talk to them, well, can we kind of book them out of your portfolio? Because they're definitely not going to be worth anything anymore. It was a highly emotional reaction that they would refuse to even talk about that stock. Mm. Uh, they would just hang on to it because it was too painful to admit to themselves that they've made a big mistake. And that's when you yeah. are no longer a long-term investor, even though they often claim to be, uh, not in the case of a bankruptcy, but when you're down 80%, uh, for example. Um, but that's when you're no longer a long-term investor. That's when you're just being stubborn. And stubbornness is really bad for your performance. Yeah, no, yeah definitely agree on that. I want to transition now into a bit more about the market today. Obviously, very interesting what's been going on. And I believe your, your investing career started during the technology bubble. And obviously, as you mentioned uh, earlier on, there's some similarities potentially to what we're seeing in technology stocks today. Um, and I just wanted to start by what, are we in a bubble? Do, you, do you, people have been talking about that most recently over the last couple of weeks? What's your viewpoint on it? So I don't think we're in a bubble. Um, but that is also depends on what you define as a bubble where everybody has a little bit of a different definition, but I don't think markets overall at this point in time are in a bubble. Uh, I think markets have probably in this recovery gotten ahead of themselves in the sense that they are assuming that we've 
exited lockdown. We're not going to have any problems anymore. There's no second wave coming. Nothing's going to happen to us anymore. And I don't think that is a realistic assumption about the, uh, the future or the next 12 to 24 months, because simply un un until we have a vaccine uh, that has been rolled out um, uh, to, to pretty much everybody, uh, we're in a situation where we constantly have to face the possibility of a second wave potentially a third wave and to, to face situations where we have partial lockdowns in individual cities, like we've seen in, in Leicester in the UK, uh, or where some businesses like restaurants have to temporarily shut down again, just to keep the virus under control. So these kinds of scenarios at the moment, nobody has priced them in. And I think the stock markets are too optimistic in that respect. Okay. They're also a little bit too optimistic, as I said, in terms of the growth prospects for the big tech companies like the Microsofts or the big online retailers like Amazon. Yeah. I mean, at this point in time, Amazon is the world's most valuable company, depending on the day. Sometimes it's Apple, sometimes it's Amazon, but say it's number one. Yet long-term growth expectations for the profits of the company are still in the order of 20% to 25% per year for the next five to 10 years. If that would be the case, then in 10 years time, Amazon would be like a 10th of the US economy. <laughs> that is just not possible. <laughs> so sometimes between today and 2030, people will have to scale back their 20% growth expectations and that's when the day of reckoning will come for Amazon. Okay, I see what you mean. Yeah, so yeah, so the, the perception is that you know nothing's going to stop the growth of this company, but eventually, you know, it's just it, it can't grow that quickly for that long. It's got to slow down. Exactly, and and so so the question is, is that a bubble in Amazon? I wouldn't mm. say so. It's just a situation where uh, it's unsustainable in the long run. Okay, um, but so what I wanted to ask you next about that is that some of these, particularly in technology, as we've seen the Nasdaq hit all-time highs again very, very recently, but it's, it's the industry that's recovered most in the US um, and looks like very overextended at the moment. And some of these companies in there, especially the cloud sort of based companies are more than 30 times earnings, quite a lot more, a few, a few of them, which obviously is very high levels. Not that that is an indicator of, you know, it's not, obviously it's based on supply and demand in the end. So it's the sentiment on the company and what people believe. How, how do you invest when, some of those asset valuations appear to be exceptionally high? Well, first of all, we have to be careful with value multiples in this environment. Uh, so let's look at price to earnings ratio as an example. It depends very much on whether you look at past 12 month, trailing 12 month earnings or forward expected 12 month earnings. And both are, in my view, unreliable at this point in time. Because if I look at the last 12 month earnings, well, for Amazon, that might still be a reliable indicator. But for most companies, trailing 12 month earnings are unreasonably high. And as a result, PE ratios look incredibly cheap. It depends on how you measure value these days, um, because if we just, for example, take a look at price to earnings ratios, it depends on whether I look at trailing earnings or forward earnings. And uh, if I look at trailing earnings, well, for many businesses, they are not representative of where their business is at the moment. Just think of a, a movie uh, theater chain or a restaurant chain. 
um, like McDonald's, I mean, their earnings over the last 12 months are much, much higher than anything they can achieve over the next 12 months simply because of uh, lockdowns, etc. So past earnings are not representative anymore, and that means trailing PE ratios are not really representative of what is the valuation of a company. But forward earnings aren't representative either because if you're honest, nobody knows what uh, the next 12 months will bring in terms of earnings for any major company. Uh, even the best analysts in the world, even the company insiders and company management have withdrawn guidance because the uncertainty is just way too high. And so as a result, you cannot trust your forward or your projected earnings. And that means you cannot trust your forward PE ratios. So you're lost. So what I tend to do in this environment is go back to good old price to book ratios because book values are far more stable over time. And there you see a little bit better what is cheap and what is expensive. Um, nevertheless, uh, it is an environment that is not driven by fundamentals. Our uh, stock markets at the moment are driven by news of the virus and the pandemic. And that means that if you're a value investor or, or just think you've got something really cheap now, you might be in for a really wild, uh, wild ride for quite a long time. And what I've learned uh, as coming from a value school is to pay more attention to two things. First, to high quality balance sheets, meaning high profitability, low leverage, low financial leverage on the balance sheet. And then second, uh, price momentum. I know that's anathema for a lot of value investors, but uh, it's sometimes, especially in, in, in volatile markets like today, it's better to get out of the way of a freight train and just look at price momentum. And if it's against you, then don't buy that stock just now. We know like st stuff like this, even if it was a bubble, these th sort of things can last a long time. So but there's always the sort of fear of missing out, if you like, um, on the gains that happen now. But potentially, at, you know, at your... Um, it could be devastating to a portfolio coming in at a time that you, you could say is relatively high uh, valuations. I mean, it's, it's the usual answer. Uh, if you have a long uh, time horizon, so for my long-term portfolio, I just bought additional stocks three weeks ago or two weeks ago, something like yeah. that. So I think that answers your question. Okay. <laughs> and um, something that was very interesting that I found in your blog was, uh, which I'd not, really thought of before is how people get it wrong how they think for, that wall street is is main street and it's it's not mm. um are you able to explain that in a, in a bit more detail because i found that very interesting i'm not actually read anything about that before yeah so it's it's i mean commonly uh and that's that's particular mistake by the way in the u.s much more so than in the uk or in, in europe is uh that people say well if Wall Street uh, is doing well, then the economy is doing well because Wall Street is a reflection of how the overall economy is doing. That ain't so because if you look at the sector composition of uh, the S&P 500, for example, as a broad index for the U.S. stock market, that's heavily geared towards technology companies and has very little exposure, for example, to retail uh, as, as another example. If you actually look at who contributes to GDP, so to, to real economic growth, well, the technology sector has a very small contribution of less than 5% uh, 
to U.S. GDP, even though it is more than 20% of the, the S&P 500. And, and similarly, uh, retail uh, is typically about 10% of an economy, uh, but at the moment less than 5% of the stock market. And so you see these differences that there are some sectors that actually are very productive in terms of uh, real economic output, but aren't reflected in the stock market. And that is typically the case where you have a lot of small mom and pop stores and independent stores like you have in retail. Um, that's underrepresented in the stock market, while uh, sectors and industries that have a, a few very large players like IT, they tend to be overrepresented in the, in the stock market. And as a result, if these kind of large companies do really well, then the stock market does really well, even though the economy does really poorly. Mm. And, and that is what drives that difference. And that's why people are so at the moment flabbergasted and, and flustered by the fact that stock markets are up while the economy is doing really, really poorly. Yeah, yeah. And it's simply a, a reflection of that difference. No, I found that incredibly insightful especially now in the US, it's a very clear example of how maybe, you know, the, the stock market, you know, is, is correct in, in what it's doing at the moment, even though the mom and pop stores might be finding it hard, yeah, or retail in general, a lot of them, apart from the ones that have nailed online. But yeah, very, very interesting. And what's, what's your opinion on how the Fed um, and other central banks are sort of interacting with the market at the moment? essentially to try and avoid recessions mm. more so than they have before where, you know, we'd have uh, times when there's been shakeouts in the stock market of weak companies. This time hasn't happened so much, but potentially you could argue because the Fed's got involved so much. Have you got an opinion on, on, on that? Yes, I do. And, and I mean, to, I would say the shortest answer I can give is that we're all becoming Japanese now. Uh, in the sense that uh, central banks are propping up uh, the stock market and trying to prop up actually the real economy with printing a lot of money, pushing a lot of money into the system. Um, I think that just like in Japan, and by the way, just like after the financial crisis, that money will never create inflation because it will always be stuck in the stock market and be held by banks and other institutional investors and recycled into assets. Um, amongst them, government bonds. But that's a that's a in-depth discussion uh, that we can have another time. Yeah. Uh, in essence, uh, I think the risk is that because of those central bank actions and because of the central banks having zero interest rates and basically providing money for free, a lot of companies that otherwise would have gone bankrupt now face the possibility of surviving as a zombie company. Mm -hmm. For example, at the moment, a lot of companies that have loans with banks have seen their covenants uh, be suspended. So the, the triggers or the tests whether a company is solvent, uh, that has been suspended by the banks simply because in a crisis like the current one, it doesn't make sense to, to test these things because on the, on the surface, at least temporarily, most companies will look like they're bankrupt, even though three months from now, they might actually be up and running normally again. Yeah. So we're living in this world where covenants have been uh, suspended and delayed, and, but they will have to be reintroduced in one or two years time. And uh, that means that at that point in time, a lot of companies will suddenly face bankruptcy or, or be known to be close to bankruptcy. 
And that's when we will see, I think, a, a little bit of a shakeout and something like a credit crunch uh, in, in slow motion, if you will, uh, once we put these regulations and these triggers and, and monitoring instruments back into place. Uh, and then it depends very much what the central banks will do. Will they rescue it uh, with fresh money, like the Bank of Japan did in the 1990s, creating kind of a bunch of zombie companies that should have gone bust but still are allowed to survive? Or are we going down the road where uh, we allow them to fail in a controlled fashion um, and, and clean the, the slate for newcomers and new growth companies to, to take over? And this slow sort of slow motion credit crisis that you've, you've written about, um, is this something that over that term would negatively impact sort of the stock market then? Or do you think you, it, would, it would affect the whole economy of somewhere like the US? Or are you talking about specific areas that might be most? I mean, it will, it will certainly be more prevalent in specific areas. So in the leisure sector and in the transport sector, those are the ones that have been hardest hit, obviously, by the, mm. by the lockdowns. And they are the ones that will face the biggest challenges uh, with covenants being reintroduced because a lot of airline companies um, and, and, and shipping companies and entertainment companies they all face high debt loads already that's the nature of their business that they have high financial leverage and and they are probably at biggest risk of basically failing to climb out of this uh, hole that we're in at the moment um, whether it's going to impact the market overall very very difficult to say because usually it starts to impact the whole the market overall if there's a big big name a very prominent company that goes under so uh, I would say if McDonald's goes bankrupt, and I know nothing about McDonald's, this is not a, a, a an assessment of whether McDonald's is in good or bad shape, but if a company like McDonald's would go bankrupt, then that would re reverberate around the entire world and in all the markets yeah. everywhere. And you've written before about the future is uncertain, uh, deal with it. We're potentially seeing a long-term decline in economic output off the back of COVID. It's potential. How do you approach Investing when the future is uncertain, is there a certain way you should sort of think about it? Uh, at the uh, risk of sounding incredibly boring, diversify, diversify, diversify. It's always the first mm. step. Uh, so don't put all your eggs in the same basket because... Is, it, is if, that between stocks? Between stocks and between different asset classes. Uh, okay. So it's, uh, yes, I've got, because I've got a long-term portfolio that is mostly geared towards stocks, but within the stocks, I've got infrastructure, uh, I've got renewable energy in there. So I've got different things that are not necessarily pure traditional stock investments. Uh, so, so diversification is the first step. And then really be humble about what you know and cannot know about the future. So I don't usually pay any attention to any forecasts about, you know, that's my target price for the FTSE in one year's time, or that's my target price for stock X in one year's time, because they're pretty much useless anyway. And, and, and in a highly uncertain environment like today, they're even more useless. Uh, the normal. So really look at the fundamentals and buy quality. That's, I would say, what I would recommend in this environment. In high uncertain times, uh, buy companies that have high profit margins while at the same time having uh, low financial leverage, meaning little debt on the balance sheet that can sustain these profit margins even in weak times. Very insightful. And um, growth stocks in particular uh, US tech stocks, 
have shown great market returns for quite some time now. Um, do you see this continuing or do you think there'll be like sector sort of rotations? I mean, everyone always plays it against value sort of based stocks as the easy sort of one to compare against. Um, or do you see this continuing for a while? Well, I think as long as we're in this crisis, I would see uh, growth stocks and tech stocks uh, to continue to outperform. Um, however, uh, one thing that we know from history, and I just looked at the last 30 years or so, at the end of each crisis, at the peak crisis moment, value stocks have been beaten down tremendously. And usually the recovery, the immediate recovery out of a crisis is uh, uh, the ideal environment where value stocks outperform growth stocks dramatically. And that's what I would expect for, for 2021. So basically once we, we get at the end of the tunnel uh, to happen where value stocks should perform really well. And um, with, you touched on it slightly in terms of diversification, but I just wanted to ask what your thoughts are on diversification within a stock portfolio specifically. How should you know, retail investors position themselves to avoid you know, the dreaded massive uh, drawdown from being too heavily invested in one stock or something? I guess the more the better, but do it right. Um, again, very stupid answer, but uh, I prefer equal weighted portfolios. So especially for retail investors who don't have the tools and, and the time to manage your, your risks in your portfolio like a professional would, simply go for equal weight. So if you say you have an equity portfolio, you might want to, within equities, uh, divide it into 10 major sectors and then put 10% of uh, your portfolio into each sector. Within each sector, you choose maybe five stocks. Free, yeah, free stocks is also probably enough. And then put the same amount of money in each of these free stocks. So you end up with a portfolio of 30 to 50 stocks that are all equal weighted. And that performs extremely well in practice, much better than any... Uh, traditional portfolio optimization would do. And is, do so you do you do a lot of backtesting of different structures, portfolio structures, etc. Is that how you come across this? Because I imagine with your math, maths background, it's quite easy for you to do these quick calculations. Yeah, that's basically my day job for the last 20 years. Yeah. Yeah. So I, th I also wanted to ask about actively managed ETFs. Um, there's been quite a few that have been launched most like recently. Mm. Um, not too many. And what's your view on sort of actively managed funds? Um, we actually, I know you've you touched on this earlier as well, but many have obviously struggled to beat the index over the last 10 years. Where, how, when do, is it the right decision to choose active uh, against sort of in, more index-based ones? You, you mentioned earlier about um, uh, emerging markets is what one sort of example. Yeah, so uh, when it comes to the active versus passive debate, I would say... I agree with you. Uh, most of the times actively managed funds don't make a lot of sense. I think the only time when you have decent chances of uh, outperforming with an actively managed fund is in less efficient markets. So emerging markets, small cap stocks, uh, specific niche areas that are uh, just at the moment underdeveloped. So you might want to think about infrastructure stocks, for example, as an example, where it's a niche market where you can actually create outperformance with an active approach. Yeah. For most of the other things, index. 
Now, when it comes to actively managed funds, I always advocate for being very active because if I pay somebody the additional fees for being active, I want this person to be really active. And if I then see an active fund manager with 100 stocks in his portfolio, I already know that basically he is just diversifying away any good idea that he might have. Mm. So I want them to have a relatively concentrated portfolios of 30 to 50 stocks active with in terms of taking real bets so i can assess whether they've done well or not okay that's that when it and comes does to that mean investing in themes and for example in themes, yeah, renewable for energy example. or okay exactly it could be i mean i like the renewable energy theme really well i like uh and that's what i do it's not available as a, as a as a fund but that's what i do in my trading portfolio i very much look into gene editing uh in, within biotechnology some of you might have heard of CRISPR-Cas9 technologies, etc. cetera. Uh, so that's what I, what I do in my trading portfolio. That's where I'm active. Uh, when it comes to ETFs and active ETFs, I am really not a fan of active ETFs. I mean, seriously, if you, if you want to have active, then go for regular funds. I don't need to have an actively managed fund that I can trade three times a day while the stock exchange is open. That just is idiotic to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, in, in general, my biggest problem with ETFs, I'm a big fan of ETFs, but the biggest problem with ETFs is that we now have replaced stock picking with ETF picking as a sideshow, uh, in the sense that there are so many spe- highly specialized ETFs around that people tend to get lost in all the varieties of ETFs and then switch from one ETF to another and buy a little bit of that and, I don't know if there's a Turkish small cap fund. I think there will be an ETF on that. Uh, and, and, you know, and just like you get lost in that and then it becomes like stock picking where you just start to buy a little bit of everything and, and it makes no sense in the bigger context anymore. And you're, you're tempted to, again, uh, fall prey to short termism. So yeah. when it comes to index funds and to ETFs, stick with the broadly diversified ones that track something like the FTSE or the S&P 500 or the MSCI world. Uh, there's one last section I wanted to go through. No, normally I do a quick fire round at the end of the um, interview, just a, a few short questions to go through. But actually I, I got so um, deep into your, your blog. Uh, I've got this sort of musings of Joachim uh, round just to go into a few <laughs> of the interesting things that you, you picked up on. Um, and some of them not, uh, you know, not uh, completely investment focused. Um, and I have to say, actually, you're quite the prolific uh, blogger and some really, honestly, ex- excellent insights on there. Um, not just about the markets, but in, yeah, investing and more widely, you know, other things about, such as business. Um, there's really some abs- absolute gems. So, again, I really recommend people. I'll, I'll um, mention where, where you can find the information from uh, Joe later on uh, at the end, the end of the interview. But uh, there's a few I've selected now. Um, and it was hard to narrow it down, but I will to start with... Um, yeah, so you're, you're a big advocate of renewable energy, um, however, also recognize the importance of carbon capture and storage facilities, um, which is obviously related to fossil fuels, um, in order to uh, hit our renewable energy goals that various um, organizations, uh, countries have set. Um, is it possible to explain that in a bit of detail? Um, it's very simple, basically. If we, I mean, I am a big fan of renewable energy. We have to switch to generating electricity almost 
exclusively, but definitely predominantly from wind, solar, and other renewable sources. The problem with wind and solar as the dominant renewable energy sources is that they vary. Uh, the wind doesn't blow all the time in the same steady flow, even though we would like it to be. The sun doesn't shine 24 hours of the day and it shines different lengths of uh, time during the day uh, in summer and in winter, etc. So there's a variability. And the problem is that we consume electricity pretty much constant but we have two peaks in our electricity consumption, namely in the morning when we have breakfast and then go to work and in the evening when we come back from, home, from work and then watch TV or do whatever we do in the evenings. And that doesn't match with when the energy is created by the sun and the wind. So how do we kind of make sure that we always have enough electricity and energy available independent of when the sun and the wind blows? Well, there are two solutions or actually free solutions. First, buy a lot of batteries. And the problem with that is we cannot build enough battery capacity in, in the time that is needed to go to 100% renewable energy. It's simply the math doesn't work out. So we will have to do something in order to uh, uh, complement renewable energy with other forces. And the other sources of uh, energy would either be nuclear power, and I'm a big fan of nuclear power to provide a, a groundswell of electricity throughout the day. <clears throat> but the problem with nuclear uh, uh, energy and electricity from nuclear energy is you can't uh, increase it rapidly. So it basically has to be always run at the same level. So the only option that we have in order to avoid these peaks or to manage these peaks in electricity demand in the evenings of every day is to have what is called peaker gas plants. So gas-powered power plants that can rapidly increase production of electricity. Now, obviously, that's a fossil fuel. So how do we get rid of the CO2? Well, that's where carbon capture and storage comes in, which can reduce the CO2 emissions of a gas power plant by 90%. And so in the end, I think what we will need for a green future is a combination of say 80, 90% renewables, 10 to 15% nuclear power, and then five to 10% of these peaker gas with carbon capture and storage, because otherwise we're never going to manage to get to the Paris Climate uh, Accords and, and to get to a sustainable uh, future. Yeah, very interesting. It's the first time I've heard someone uh, uh, talk about it in such a way. So that, that was uh, really interesting to have that insight. Um, the next one, we're jumping to work from home. Um, you've talked about, well, that, you know, the question is, will there be a long-term change to, to how people, um, work and, and are people going to become more remote after this sort of experience through COVID? Um, and related to that is what are your thoughts on the productivity of, of workforces, um, that have make the decision to go completely remote and you know what are the potential downsides of it yes so uh, as i titled that blog post i'll give it a year um i think in a, in a year or two we will all be back to the to our offices and and factories and and wherever we used to work uh, and not work from home anymore or only partially work from home because 
at the moment, it feels like we've become much more productive in working from home <clears throat> because we save ourselves to commute, we can focus, uh, there are not too many distractions, that annoying colleague who always comes by with his lame jokes isn't there anymore to distract us. Uh, all these things are really nice. And that makes us feel like we're becoming more productive. But productivity is more than just getting things done. Productivity is a creative process of having new ideas, of getting your business forward, of, of coming up with new products, etc. And that is a very, very interactive process. And uh, I, I think not only I, I'm convinced that this kind of creativity can only happen when people are physically in, uh, together with each other. Uh, now, I've, once I wrote on that subject, I got a lot of responses and it tended to be like the young generation said, well, Slack and all these uh, tools uh, can, can take care of that. While all the older people like I am, uh, we all said, no, that's not going to do it. Um, so my, I might be biased because it might be a generational difference, but let's face it. Uh, I just had another call with a client today, earlier today. And, and when I, when we talked about that subject, he said, yeah, that might be true that the young generation can work better with, uh, these online tools, but how are they ever going to be promoted in their, in their career if they never show up in the office? So uh, I think it's the old people that will force the young people to come back to the office because otherwise you're just missing out in the bonding experience and the team experience and your risk getting sidelined in your work and in your career. And that is in the end not really good for, for either the firm or yourself. And uh, you also mentioned uh, that you know could be an opportunity for companies in the same industry where some have gone full remote uh, thinking it's going to be, um, you know, the most productive way to do it because they're saving costs from not having their office anymore. But actually, it might be a chance for the for uh, people to gain market share from those companies if it doesn't go the way they think it's going to go. Absolutely, I think I think it's a it's it's a it's a creeping uh, decline of productivity and creativity that these companies will experience that for, uh, that put more weight on work from home and, and remote work. Um, and while the companies that are really kind of challenged the establishment, they tend to be the ones where people work in small agile teams together in a very yep. kind of close collaboration. And so, for example, I, I see a lot of banks which have, especially the big banks say, oh, we'll, we'll let everybody work from home because it works so well. Yeah, well, all the fintech banks and uh, and fintech companies will will show them that that's probably not such a great idea. Uh, so accelerate their decline, maybe. Um, yeah. And I think we'll just we haven't obviously been quite a while, so I have I've got one more. Um, if that's okay, I'd ask. It's it's about uh, you've again touched on it earlier, but I think we can go into into a bit more depth. Uh, Facebook, Amazon, Alphabet, Apple uh, is about why why we should break them up. Um, and also why you think there's an eventual drop in an eventual drop in their share price is inevitable. I mean, the, the, the drop in share price is probably because there's too much long-term growth priced in it at this point in time. And we've touched on that. Uh, I think another problem is that, uh, especially when it comes to Facebook and Google, they have become so dominant in their little niches, Google in terms of internet search, Facebook in terms of social media, that if you look at uh, new startup companies, 
they basically have no chance of competing with Google or Facebook because either they get bought by Google and Facebook and then integrated into this big monstrous company. Uh, classic example is Instagram and, and all these, these challenges <clears throat> that are now owned by Facebook. Um, or uh, you literally get priced out of the market by these big companies. So you never can, I mean, Google can offer its services for free infinitely. Uh, it can, it can undermine your business model, uh, forever and you will run out of cash and you will die. So effectively what Google and Facebook do is they've created what is called amongst venture capitalists is called a, a kill zone and venture capitalists are less and less likely to actually finance startups in the social media or internet search, uh, domains. And so as a result, they've become effectively monopolies in these areas and, just like the standard oil company of John Rockefeller in the early 1900s used to be a monopoly on oil. So these companies are now monopolists on the oil of the 21st century, namely data. And if you look at their revenues relative to US GDP, they are several times the size that standard oil was when it was broken up in an antitrust uh, proceeding in 1906, I think. Uh, and, is it a surprise that the U.S. Congress is now uh, holding antitrust hearings against Facebook and Google? No. Will it get somewhere? Probably not a, a breakup of these companies, but definitely more regulation. And at the moment, also, these companies do not price in any regulation on their activities going forward. So, yeah, so a looming threat for the next 10 years is for those companies. It, it is you know, regulation, which, which is going to hinder their growth, basically. Yes. Um, because a company can't be bigger than a country, I suppose, <laughs> or risk like that. That would be tricky. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, brilliant. So th that was it, basically. I, I mean, there's a huge amount of uh, other interesting articles on there, but I just chose a, a few that uh, came up that I, I thought were interesting, as well as a, spot, a Spotify one that um, we, we tackled earlier on. Um, but yeah, I'd just like to th say thank you very much Joachim, and, and um, remind everyone again that uh, Joachim's book is out now, Seven Mistakes Every Investor Makes and How to Avoid Them. Um, definitely one not to miss. Um, and where, where can, people, people, can people go to, to buy it? Uh, basically everywhere. Amazon, for example. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so it's best best place to go is Amazon. Um, so yeah, if you step, type that in, you, you'll find it straight away. Um, Highly recommend everyone going to, to find that. If, if this interview hasn't given you enough, then, you know, um, I'm, uh, you should definitely go because uh, I'm telling you to. <laughs> um, and just want to finish on where you can find more information from Joachim. So on Twitter, at uh, Joachim Clement. That's right, I believe. Is that right? Yes, correct. And online at clementoninvesting.substack.com. Or simply www.jclement.com, which will get you right onto my blog. Oh, brilliant. Yeah, I highly recommend the blog. Really was fascinating. Uh, one of the best I've come across in quite some time, actually. Is there anything else you'd like to say to the audience before, before we go? Oh, thanks to everybody for listening and for tuning in. Thank you for having me. Uh, it was good fun. And uh, I hope to hear and see you all uh, in the future. Thank you very much. Cheers. Thanks for listening, everyone. Just a quick note before we sign off. If you're looking for an easily digestible daily update on the markets, 
this might be of interest to you. Opto Updates is our short newsletter sent every day during a trading week, giving you a bulleted list of the top seven stories from the global stock markets. We've done the hard work for you, highlighting relevant opportunities and trends. And in addition, we'll also keep you notified of any new podcasts, stock reports or events from the Opto world. If you're interested, sign up using the link in the show notes. Until next time.